Because they want to believe that Jesus is the one who put Trump in charge. A, Jesus lives in the White House. B, Jesus was absent from the White House for eight years. And now Jesus is back in the White House. Christianity's back. Jesus is back. Go team. Let's turn it back. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Welcome to episode 41 of Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a craft-brewed pint or maybe a fine wine or perhaps a cup of tea. You can watch us live Tuesdays, 9 p.m. Eastern at pubtheology.com, and you can listen anytime on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, and now you can even catch us on the New Thought channel. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsors, including Craft Beer Cellar who is the home of premium craft brews, and their primary focus is amazing beer, education, and hospitality. You can visit craftbeercellar.com for a location near you. And in fact, they're opening one, uh, I think next month, uh, right near me here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And you can win a gift card for free beer from Craft Beer Cellar by joining our conversation. Comment anytime on Twitter or Facebook using hashtag PTLive. And new for 2017, you can call in and leave a voicemail at 980-PT-LIVE-0 or 980-785-4830. And our newest sponsor, Wink Wine Club, which I'm super excited about because y'all know I'm the wine drinker on the show. Um, Wink with a C, W-I-N-C, features superbly crafted wines delivered right to your door. Get started at trywink.com slash PT live for $20 off your first order and other savings. Um, check out the website. Um, I joined Ogan's a member. Um, I get four bottles a month and they're really reasonable prices. And like I said, if you, if you go through PT live, you get the $20 off your first order. If you recommend other people, you get, um, you can get money off of, of future bottles of wine, which is awesome. Cause you know, you need wine. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Well, tonight we are joined by guest Dr. Keisha E. McKenzie, program director at Believe Out Loud. Originally from London, she went to college in Jamaica, grad school in West Texas, and now is claiming both a sleepy town in Central Maryland and the world's tiniest apartment in New York City as home. And like other non-Americans, Keisha doesn't vote in the US, but unlike number 45, and I think you know who we mean, she does pay a lot of taxes. Keisha's pronouns are she and they. So we are super excited to have Keisha on the show. So welcome, Keisha. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you guys. It's, it's great to have you. So we're going to be discussing uh, some of the events of the past weekend. Apparently, we have a new president, and I guess a few folks took to the streets the next day. So we'll be talking a little bit about all of that and more. My name is Brian Burkoff. I am the pastor of Holland United Church of Christ in Holland, Michigan, and author of the book Pub Theology, Beer, Conversation, and God. But tonight, I am drinking a wine. Ooh. It is a wine called Insurrection, which just <laughs> felt timely. 
I don't know why. It's a dry red, and so I'm going to mix it up and have a little wine tonight. And with us, as usual, is Tina Simmons. Welcome, Tina. Hi. I'm also drinking wine tonight, but I'm not drinking one of my Wink wines. Um, I did go through all four bottles, and my next shipment hasn't come in yet. Hello. <laughs> but I'm, I'm drinking. It's um, it's a homemade plum wine that we had made. I'm going to show you the label because it's darn cute. I designed it myself. Nice and, job. Uh, Yes. Right. We picked the plums and we made the wine here, so it's all homemade and it's warm. It's lovely. Oh, How long wow. did it take to brew? You know, um, I think I want to say two months. Whew. All right. Yeah, it, it wasn't a long process. It was. It we started in September and it was ready for the holidays. So, it was really perfect. Sweet. What I have in my cup here is um, ginger root tea. I got the root. On my way home from work today, grated it, well, peeled it, grated it, boiled it. Um, then there's a, a hibiscus tea and uh, a little lime juice and a little honey. Whoa. I have, I have declared war on the sniffles. Um, it's that season in New York, so. Yeah, well done. Well played. That is the <laughs> nicest cup of tea that has ever appeared on our show. So that I'm is I'm glad to help. That is very well done. Very well Thank done. And, and just to let you know, Ogan is harassing me on Facebook at this moment saying that I may need to go to some specials that I've gone through four bottles of wine in a month. I don't have a problem with it. We can be different. <laughs> And again, for our listeners, uh, Ogan is not joining us this week. And as we mentioned last week, he is in his home country of Barbados. And we offer our condolences as they had the funeral for his grandmother. And so we keep Ogan and family in our thoughts and prayers. And we'll see you soon, bud. But he did promise to be a pain in the ass on Messenger while we're on the show. So. And he's fulfilling expectations. That's right. That's right. So we often begin the show with kind of just a fun question. Uh, this one's maybe a little tongue in cheek. Uh, so we're asking, share a favorite alternative fact. So apparently, hashtag alternative facts were trending uh, over the weekend and people were having fun with it. So if you could have something be so, what, what might it be? Um, hmm. Well, I, I don't know. I think I'm, I misinterpreted the question. But my favorite alternative fact is that the Matrix series was plagiarized by, uh, by the brothers, now sisters, um, and the original author is supposedly Sophia Stewart. That's my favorite <laughs> alternative fact because that story s seems to just come up again and again and again, and it will never die, even though Snopes debunked it like six years ago. So that's my there favorite. You go, there you go. So so how did you originally interpret the question? Um, yeah, just make up something and see if it sticks if you repeat it long enough, which I think uh, is well, what the, the original alternative fact story was really all about. Good. Very well, good. and it, it's true. I mean, you can't believe anything anymore that you hear. It's like you have to research. And it's. It, I feel like we live in a crazy world right now. Like people are purposely putting misinformation out there just to see if people buy it. I just, yeah. I don't know. And and there's a sense in which, uh, at least in conventional politics, that's always been the case that um, you blend politics and advertising and this kind of market ideology that tells you in order to 
retain hold of people's attention, you have to um, frame and reframe and massage information and then come up with something called alternative facts and um, shape your content in ways that will appeal to either the values or the biases or preferably both of your intended audience. And that's not new. It's just right. refined. And so somebody was talking on Twitter a couple of days ago about um, the 20 year career of, of the Fox network. And they've really refined this model and it's worked on generations of voters in this country and has analogs elsewhere around the planet, unfortunately, because but, it works. But can't you see that? I mean, cause you always have to see when you have something like that, that is intentionally, I'm going to say dishonest because to me it feels dishonest. Don't you see the flip side of that is we end up in a society that is so skeptical. They don't believe anything. Yes. And then we're all like, what happened to hope? What happened to faith? Mm -hmm. Oh, gee, I can't imagine why. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it does. It leads to cynicism, skepticism, and not even the good kind of skepticism, because I think a healthy yep. amount of doubt is appropriate. Mm -hmm. But yes. um, it can lead to this kind of circular um, cynicism and apathy. So people don't even trust the system enough to participate. And if you don't participate, then the people who participate make things happen. And if the That's people right. who are participating are exclusively the people who love alternative facts, then we're going to live in a in a wonderland. Is yeah, that kind of not, not a nice not a nice wonderland? No, 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 no rabbits and and no cake. <laughs> That's, right. That's, right. <laughs> That's right. So Tina, do you have a uh, an alternative fact? If you could have something be so that isn't and or something that you would try to spin, however you want to frame it? No, um, I, I, I couldn't think of anything that I would have done, like I would spin or whatever. Um, I But some of the ones I thought were funny that were trending was um, that um, Trump went back in time and killed Hitler with his bare hands. Um, <laughs> yes, I saw that. And then there was a Danish video. Did you guys see the Danish video that went out? It's no. Look it up. Look up Danish Trump video. But they're like, okay, we get America first, but we want Netherlands second. Can we make it Netherlands? <laughs> but one of their alternative alternative facts was um, German German isn't a real language. It's just a farce. <laughs> I just thought that was hysterical for some reason. Nice. But I, I sent you. I don't know if uh, Brian. I know you saw it. Keisha, I don't know if you saw, but they had. There was a meme that had a little golden book and it had a whole bunch of pictures on it and none of the words matched up and it said the first little golden book of our alternative facts and it was just the cutest thing I love yeah it. it was like donald trump's first first book when he was a kid or something yeah 1.5 million people read it in the first week there you go there you go that was great because you delivered it with a, a straight face tina so well done that was good. I think she slipped it right by me. She's usually not quite so. That was good. Well done. Well done. So my my alternative fact would be that uh, my children are perfectly behaved and go to bed on time every night and you know listen to their dad. Uh, That's your dream, Brian. Oh shoot! Yes. Well, yeah. It's like alternative universe almost. You know this alternative fact stuff. So, um, so speaking of that. Uh, we had these two major events happen over the weekend, of course, the inauguration on Friday and then the women's 
March on Washington and in many other cities across the country and the world on Saturday. And it's super interesting to me, some of the reactions that I've seen to both events, in particular coming from different Christian people and groups and some vastly different interpretations on Friday as well as on Saturday. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, uh, how can there be such uh, polarization even within one religious uh, faith? I, I think even there, that's always been the case too. Like I just got reading this book called um, Paul and Jesus by James Tabor. Oh yeah. And, uh, he, he's endeavoring in the book to uh, uncover the, the religion, the religious teachings of the early church and contrast them with the religious teachings of the Apostle Paul in the genuine letters of Paul. And, That's right. and so one of the things that I noticed in the book was the way that he describes the early church, not as this univocal community, this single voiced community, but a community that included people who had differing beliefs about the law, different beliefs around time, different beliefs around the family, um, different beliefs around what kind of ritual practices people should uh, retain, uh, what the right relationship bet uh, between someone's ethnicity and their religious practice was. And all of that was within 50 years of Jesus and the, the founders of this religion. And we've had like 2,000 years of <laughs> right. uh, since, 2,000 years since, and uh, culture changing the religious communities everywhere it goes. So every, every new place that this religion goes, it takes on a, a slightly different character, in some ways substantially different character. Mm. And then there's, you throw an interpretation of the core texts, and you have the reformed tradition folks and you have um, people who even today have different experiences and, and interpretations of the law and the family and the rituals and the practices and the ethnicity and yes that's right we're, we're not striking new ground when one community struggles to say black lives matter and another community says it freely that's not new territory so is that just the nature of religion i think it's the nature of people and uh, politics fractures in much the same way. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. So it, one of, but it can be worse because people in religion are appealing to an eternal set of value systems. Um, they're appealing to a higher authority than just human uh, debate, and so I think it can be even more extreme in the religious religious sphere than in the political. But it's it's the same sort of dynamic. That's right. That's right. And one of the things I saw in reaction to um, the inauguration proceedings was people uh, of a, I'll just say more, let's say evangelical or more conservative um, Christian um, background were really excited by the number of prayers and the number of times Jesus name was mentioned. And in fact, one person said, um, 
because Jesus' name was mentioned so many times that Jesus won or Jesus' name won. Mm. And I, I didn't realize there was a battle there happening uh, and that okay. we were counting. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I just wonder what either of you think, what kind of theology is behind that idea that we're sort of, I don't know, competing and that just hearing this certain name a number of times somehow is a, is a victory of sorts. The, where do you think that's coming from and why does that feel meaningful to some folks? Because they want to believe that Jesus is the one who put Trump in charge. That's, yeah. I mean, that's my personal take. They, they want to be like, I wanted Trump, so Jesus must want Trump. That's why he won. And Jesus was just mentioned a hundred times. So it's true. <laughs> Alternative facts. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the the idea that there's a cosmic battle of good and evil and it just mm -hmm. so happens that I'm on the right side in that cosmic battle is a really common theme. And that goes back to the beginning, too. Um, so like in the early church, you had folks who did see the story of good and evil as almost like a drama. And the church was fortunate enough to be uh, one of the characters in this cosmic drama and so if you had the right kind of ruler who complied with your religion then they were on the side of the good in this drama and if you right. fell afoul of the religious authorities and um and or the ruler then you were considered part of the evil in the in the drama and eliminated as such and it, it just it takes on a, a different kind of expression, but it's that's also pretty modern. Um, my background is Seventh Day Adventist, and so every so often you might, if you're lucky, in a town with a, an Adventist population, get a flyer in your mail that has some beasts on the front, um, and okay. the beasts are from Revelation and or Daniel, and they're used in a way that symbolizes this cosmic battle between good and evil. And, and and inevitably that cosmic battle comes down to earth and is um, imposed upon po politics. Um, the current powers, movements. yeah. Yeah, anything that's con controversial or um, challenging among humans becomes part of this cosmic story. So how do you feel about that appropriation and that assignment and coming from that tradition yourself? Uh, do, you, do you find meaning in that or does it give you pause or trouble you? Lots of pauses, lots, lots, <laughs> lots of pauses. Right <laughs> yeah, now. lots of pauses. Um, yeah, I, I find it unhelpful when there there are debates that people can actually have, the, people have the capacity to settle these debates among ourselves, but we're stuck in the story of good and evil and therefore there can be no negotiation or discussion um, and discussion is framed as compromise and compromise is a failure and you're losing the battle. So. Yeah. Yes. So I, I have lots of pauses around that, um, which is not to say that I, I don't think that myth is useful, but I think that um, it can so overshadow our ability to problem solve that sometimes, like these times, it's unhelpful. But, yeah, but when somebody, think, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think uh, myth does have value, as you noted, but when it uh, almost is literalized as if, you know, we see that myth coming to life now and we know exactly who is what character in that drama mm -hmm. as you said that just will justify almost anything 
and there's no room for um, shades of, of nuance and um, gray. It's just, hey, it's this or it's that. You're with us or you're against us. And that which we've heard we live before. in too complex a time. <laughs> but Brian, that's happening on both sides too. I mean, that's as long as we have an us versus them mentality, it doesn't matter which side of that us versus them you're on, it's still that mentality. Yeah, I was gonna just pick on the the part about Jesus's name winning, <laughs> and um, yeah. the idea that if you have several mentions of a thing, then that's obviously good. To me, it's a, a shallow way to understand the character and teachings of Jesus. To just think about who says the name multiple times. Just because you say the name multiple times doesn't mean you understand what it stands for. Yes. Um, and and I, I and I won't like be so simplistic as to say um, there's only one right way to understand what it stands for, because That's as we've just talked about, the church disagrees within itself. Um, all these traditions um, appeal to what it stands for, but I think that you can look at the stories of the Jesus of the Gospels and. Um, and, it, and make some extrapolations from that from those stories, and and say to yourself, maybe it's not consistent. Maybe the Jesus of the Gospels would not be consistent with grift or theft or uh, adultery or um, abuse or mockery of vulnerable people or um, any number of things. Maybe you could say that. Um, right. You could have a debate about whether it was consistent with being exclusive, um, but certainly some things are much more clear about the Jesus of the Gospels than others. And and so just because somebody has that name in their mouth a lot doesn't necessarily mean they understand the character. And to me, that that's kind of a manipulation. You know, yeah. they're they're using it to just get what they want doesn't mean that, I mean, that's not at all what Jesus intended people to do, but that's just my interpretation. I, I think you're, I think you're both right. I think manipulation is a, is a correct word that it's one of those sort of, I mean, it's, I like the name Jesus, of course, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, uh, I love it, but it can be uh, a word that captures people and makes you think, okay, yes, our team, score one for our team without that deeper level of, as you said, Keisha, what, Jesus stood for as best we're able to understand and knowing that we don't know that perfectly and there's some variation, mm -hmm. but I'm more interested in someone who's trying to live out values they see embodied in Jesus than mm -hmm. saying any words, but certainly saying that name a bunch of times. But even, even the idea that the people who are saying it this time at that particular ceremony are all of a sudden representative of the Christian tradition when if you scroll back even five or seven years, evangelicals were happy to um, to dissociate from leaders like Paula White and other members of the prosperity gospel circuit. Right. But suddenly they're all part of the same collective um, now that they can rally around the same political figure. And so that's part of the man manipulation that former um, antagonists suddenly become allies because of the politics, not because of the doctrinal right. 
their doctrinal relationship or similarity, but because they are politically useful to each, to each other. Mm-hmm. And so somebody who doesn't necessarily track the way that they've been talking about each other all along would see them all lined up together, praying and saying Jesus together and think that they actually have a lot in common and they don't. They really don't. Yeah. Great call. And I think some of what is behind, uh, for some folks, this religiosity, you might say, that was a part of the inaugural proceedings was this uh, ridiculous notion that just would seem to not go away that President Obama was actually not a Christian or not a real Christian, or in fact, maybe was a Muslim, uh, and which ridiculous, uh, yet kept coming out, right? Or wasn't the right kind of Christian, what have you. And I just think that did not go away. And so then now that someone new is in and it was our guy on our political team and Jesus was said a lot, it's like, hey, suddenly we're back, you know, Christianity's back, Jesus is back, go team. I just, I don't get that mentality. I mean, to me, it's more about character. It's about what people say, it's how they treat other people. Like. I don't care what religion you are. I don't I don't care. I don't even care what political party you are. I'm watching to see how you treat other people. But but most people say that's because I'm a heart person. <laughs> but you know what? Maybe we need a little more heart in this country. Liberal softy. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> just just a softy. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, even um, the gospel or contemporary Christian singer Vicky Yohi, is that how I pronounce her last name? was in the news recently for posting okay. um, uh, white Jesus, long hair, sandals with suitcases. And then the meme was something like, oh, I'm heading back to the White House. That's Jesus speaking. Oh, and my gosh. So she got in, did she, she do it seriously? She did, she did do it genuinely. Wow. And then she did an apology that wasn't an apology like you do these days. Um, mm. I, I'm sorry if you misinterpreted my post. Uh, yeah, one of those. Yes, but I think that that's representative of the kinds of people you were talking about, Brian, who believe that Jesus was absent from the White House. A, Jesus lives in the White House. B, Jesus was absent from the White House for eight years, and now Jesus is back in the White House. And and that is definitely a, a very particular branch of the Christian community who not only dismissed the expression of Barack Obama's faith, but would just totally totally invalidate both his religious expression and also Clinton's religious expression because she's a Methodist. That's right. And, and fairly devout. But because their political positions don't align with the positions of the people critiquing them, um, their their faith is illegitimate. And and so something that Tina was saying earlier about um, mutual demonization about uh, people on both sides saying it's an us versus them sort of thing. I do try not to say of my fundamentalist brethren that they are not part of the church. I do try. I'm tested, but sometimes I, I make the <laughs> right. Um, and part of that is is offering them something that they don't always offer me, but which I think is a, is important that sense that you belong and that your belonging is not dependent on um, your thought process, mm. which is hard because our thoughts and our actions are, are related. 
So it's hard for somebody who believes that I am fundamentally immoral or that I am deliberately misinterpreting the scriptures that they value. It's hard for that person to fully embrace me. And, and what you need for a quality relationship is a space where you can be fully embraced. And so I'm trying in those relationships, some with family and some with um, associates or, or other people that I connect with to offer that, that space. It doesn't mean that we're bosom buddies, but it means that I try to offer some space where I can graciously engage. Do you think part of the problem with that is that we have, um, well, I mean, Christianity being the predominant religion in this country, that um, there's this whole, like you have to convert other people and people have to think like you. And that puts you in a space where you can't sit in a space with another person who thinks differently than you and be like, oh, you're okay just as you are. I love you just as you are because you're being told time and time again that they have to be like you in order to go to heaven. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? It, it, it is, yeah. And it, it is hard, especially when you throw in that, that ultimate, you're going to not exist if you don't comply, kind of that right. subtle threat, which is not very subtle. Or you'll exist in a way that you'll regret for eternity. Yeah. 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 They, they don't believe that in the Adventist church, but it's, it, it's similar. Like you, you get wiped out. So you're oh, well, uh, that's preferable, actually. Yeah, step up for some, from some you. <laughs> it's yeah. better than a moment. but um, <laughs> but not much of an improvement if you actually value life. Yes. So right. I, I I just I think yeah, if if there is that existential threat hanging behind you, then it's going to be hard to have that open relationship with people because yet there's always the risk that somebody will be wrong, and and being wrong has consequences. Um, so you're, you're never in a space where you can just learn with people or just grow with people or be surprised by people because there's always that risk. And sit in the question with people. And it's sad yeah. because it's it's almost like people are coming from a place of love. You know, they they care about you, they love you, but it's it's a place of fear ultimately. You yes. know, they're afraid they're going to burn in hell forever. So they're trying to change you. Yeah, absolutely. Could you share a little bit, uh, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with uh, the organization Believe Out Loud, uh, about the work that you do with them? Absolutely. So Believe Out Loud is a primarily online network that inspires and mobilizes Christians and other people of faith and other people of conscience to take action for LGBTQ justice. It's a, one of four programs at a nonprofit in New York called Intersections International, which itself is part of the collegiate church system, which has some um, relationship to the reform tradition. Yeah, that's right. Um, but Believe Out Loud was conceived of, uh, not within that tradition, but by um, partners from across the Christian faith um, as a space where people who uh, supported the LGBTQ community and wanted language for how to express that within the Christian tradition could come together, find each other. So it began as a visibility initiative that evolved into a kind of social support network. Um, and, it, and so we have a really large platform on Facebook um, and, and a website where we host opinion articles from people across the Christian community who um, are either them, themselves LGBTQIA or um, supportive of friends and family members. Um, and then in the last few years, 
it's moved beyond that kind of editorial function uh, and includes um, support for local campaigns, specifically non-discrimination campaigns in states around the US where people are realizing in the political sphere that you can't really make progress and leave people of faith out of the equation. So uh, maybe during the mid-2000s, a couple of really severe political losses or attacks on um, civil rights happened yes. when political activists were just trying to talk secular people to secular people. And in the US, that doesn't work. It mm. might work elsewhere, but in the US, no, because uh, people of faith are such a predominant part of the electorate that you can't ask people to just make decisions without engaging what they value most. And for people of faith, that's going to be the values from their spiritual tradition. So when there are people who, um, however they arrived at an affirming position, whether that was through study or through relationship or what have you, you want to find a way to connect their most deeply valued beliefs uh, about um, justice and fairness and um, truth to the actions that they can take for the sake of their community and the people that they care about. And so that's part of what we help our partners to do um, in these state campaigns. And we uh, nurture that, that um, social and spiritual community on social media and across other platforms. And we're hosting still um, really good quality articles from people who are sharing from their experience what it's like to be at that intersection of um, the LGBTQIA movement and the Christian community as well. Mm. It's important work, and thank you for uh, being a part of that. And you said in the pre-show you're actually going to be in my neck of the woods uh, in Holland, uh, speaking uh, at an event with Room for All. So I'm looking yes, forward forward to that. That's terrific. That's terrific. And you know, one of the one of the things among several that helped me move from my tradition that I was raised in the Christian Reformed Church to the United Church of Christ was wanting an open and affirming. Uh, space in which to um, worship and uh, welcome all and particularly lgbtqia friends and and people in our community and i have to say it just feels so good to now be a part of a church community where we can openly say that and be open and affirming and not have to apologize or say well we we want to welcome you but officially we have this policy and um but it, you know it's 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 it takes time and there's a lot of work yet to be done. So yeah, yeah for the work it, you're doing. thank you. And it, it is, you're right. It is, it is very difficult for people in traditions that have not yet made that step to say, you know, regardless of sexual orientation or gender, because the same core issues of who's in the circle, it applies across issues. So it could be whether women can be spiritual leaders or it could be, um, can somebody be divorced and have a church position? I mean, there's there's so many of those yes. uh, lines in the sand that are drawn, and this is just one of many. Um, but yep. the same core uh, approach to community applies here, where you say, if somebody's in the the family, on what basis do you kick them out of the family? Why would you do something like that? And 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 there are extreme cases where somebody is. Um, I guess banished from family, but typically when they have a, maybe abused somebody over many, 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 many years, not when uh, there's a, a disagreement or they're left-handed or they're 
LGBTIQ or um, we don't do it because of who people are. We tend to do it when what they do is toxic to the community. And so like even even if that's the measure of how we we say that we're family to each other, if if we're taking that kind of perspective, then it really doesn't apply to LGBT people because who we are is not toxic. Um, except if you believe it is. If you yeah, so that's the alternative fact of the moment. Right? Yeah, I no mean, doubt. No doubt. <laughs> if, if in your mind, being part of that community is is against the Bible, then you do think it's toxic. Yeah, and so that's well, kind of uh, why we can't define facts in terms of what's in your mind. It's true. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> Nothing on earth works like that. But 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 it all does, Keisha, doesn't it? I mean, everything is is everybody's personal story. It's what oh, they personally Lord. believe based on <laughs> you know like facts plus experience it's their own filter yeah yeah so so i i understand that meaning is a function of somebody's interpretation of reality but reality still exists and we all live and negotiate traffic as if reality exists we don't like walk into the intersection and say hmm i would like this to be a green light <laughs> that's right that's right functionally we know there are facts and it's just when we're really motivated to ignore them that we make up these stories about alternative facts. That's true. And and very often there are there are human costs to that. So in in terms of the LGBT community, there are very real and uh, um, kind of damning facts and consequences, like forty percent up to forty percent of uh, homeless youth uh, identifies LGBT, and typically because they're kicked out by parents who are Christian. Um, at least in this country. So that's, you know, depending on which stats you look at, it's 20 to 40%. Um, or um, various other instances of violence committed against vulnerable members of the population. Um, there, are, there are consequences to the way that we talk about people, the way that we conceive of people. Um, and I think it's important for me as somebody who still um, is a person of faith to say, how can I uh, wield that faith in a responsible way and encourage my siblings in faith to do the same, knowing that if we don't do it, people get hurt. Yeah. If we're irresponsible about what we believe, people get hurt. And I, yep. I think that we do have a responsibility to be more careful um, with how we render other people, especially people who are vulnerable. Absolutely, absolutely. And so that gets into, uh, Perhaps talking a little bit about what happened on Saturday, where um, you know hundreds of thousands uh, of women, if not more, in the nation's capital, and that number in a number of cities around uh, around the country uh, marched for women's issues uh, and a lot of issues, LGBTQ issues, uh, Im immigration issues, uh, climate issues, and a number of people of faith were also involved in those. Uh, in those marches, Christians, uh, Jews, Muslims, uh, people of not of faith, people of uh, other faith traditions as well. And I know for some who were colleagues of mine, uh, including my wife and, and other UCC uh, clergy, they did it as an act of discipleship, as an act of what they called resistance uh, 
as a part of being a Christian and a follower of Jesus. And I just, it's, and I resonate strongly with that, but not everybody saw it that way. So I'm wondering, uh, did you feel inspired by uh, what you saw happening and, and what, what was, what was either of your takes on, on what went down on Saturday? And uh, yeah, what do you think some of the fallout might be? Well, um, I didn't participate. Um, I have my own reasons for not participating. One of them is sticking me in a, a crowd of thousands of people. It's just never a good idea. Um, it's not my thing. I totally respect people that it's their thing. Um, th there is an element to the us versus them mentality that um, I, I don't like. I understand that we kind of have to have that at this moment. But what you just said, Brian, you just named all these different groups. Like they're, they're, every single group in our country was represented in these marches. And that says a lot about our country, that you know everybody will stand up together when they believe that something's not right, that you know the vulnerable people are being hurt, you know, and and there were white Christian men that were doing it too, so that were standing up. And um, I don't know. I think that's pretty commendable. And if nothing else comes of this, it shows that we can stand together. Occasionally, white men do something right, but it's very rare. So <laughs> you know. I I'm not going there. I'm not going there either. You hold that uh, for yourself, buddy. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, that was unnecessary. We'll edit that out. Um, so, so Keisha, I, I saw that you did a little bit of writing on uh, on what happened over the weekend. Any any thoughts that you had as as how things struck you? Yeah, I I was at a conference um, pretty much all of last week, and there were some members of the conference who who took a contingent out to the Philadelphia March um, and, and really appreciated the environment. And I've heard mixed perspectives on it. One of the reasons I didn't go myself was, was that ambivalence about um, the framing that the organizers were using. Uh, the march, the DC march at least, originated in a once secret group called Pantsuit Nation, which uh, during the lead up to the election um, was in, in secret, quiet support of, of Hillary Clinton, which didn't, I guess, turn out the way that they expected it to. Um, right. And, and once the results came in, this group of millions was suddenly casting about to figure out, what do we do now? And um, an initial march was proposed in DC and eventually, after several hiccups um, at the organizing level, it became the Women's March. And so I, I, once they got some support from people who knew how to organize these things, I, I really appreciate what, what they were able to create. I did go out um, on the street and marched 40 blocks one rainy New York evening, um, the night of the election, or was it the, the day after? One of one of the two, and yeah. um, that was also an experience where I saw everybody show up. Uh, yes, across the, the political spectrum, across the ethnic spectrum, um, across the age spectrum, and some people were very angry, and so some of the chants were not chants that I would repeat in public, um, and some people <laughs> were. Literally, a woman came up to me as uh, older than me, but young white woman came up to me um, 
just before I decided to go home and asked me what they were saying and she burst into tears and, and needed a hug. And mm. people were that emotionally invested in not being represented by somebody who they believe is uh, such a poor figurehead for their core values. And um, so emotionally fought that they were in tears and people in New York were actually making eye contact and um, asking each other how, I mean, it was amazing. Right. <laughs> um, for the people entire needed week, each other, right? Yeah, for the entire week of the election, people actually were humane to each other because mm. they were just terrified of what this means, what it, what it means that we've crossed over into this, this new era in, mm. in political leadership. Um, but but while while there's like this concentration of attention on the marches, I'm more concerned about um, how how these coalition communities relate after the cameras turn off. So, for example, I was reading a report from a native woman who was at one of the major marches and talked about um, basically being treated like a museum piece by the majority white women around her and her, um, her group. Um, so they were in traditional um, garb and um, were told they were beautiful, but weren't able to have a substantive dialogue with people around them about the issues that concerned them. So you're willing to look at somebody and crown them pretty because they're exotic, exotic. And, uh, but when they're concerned about water access or a pipeline cutting through their territory or um, even how we frame something like immigration on their territory that was <laughs> right. unjustly stolen. Um, but you're not willing to have that conversation, which means that they're not really an equal in the conversation. Yes. They are that object or that museum piece or something to stare at and take pictures of. And, and those dynamics are not, rare they're actually yeah. pretty systemic and so if we're going to talk about doing things differently from what we say trump represents then we have to look at those dynamics and 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 not just take refuge in in the event as awesome as it feels to be part of that my partner went yeah. and and was inspired by that and so what's next how do we how do we marshal that energy that collective attention and look at some of those things that are much harder to talk about and more uncomfortable to talk about, but need resolution if we're going to make progress. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I heard and was reading some of the critiques you mentioned, uh, questions about uh, the organizing level and the inclusivity from the start and yep. um, certain issues being mentioned at some points and then being taken away and then, mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, I heard some of those critiques as well, and I think they were absolutely valid. Uh, and I know some people chose to participate and some not for yeah. all for valid reasons. And I yeah. certainly respect that. Uh, and as you said, you know, it, it was great that there was some energy. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people needed that sort of like mm -hmm. when you talked about the night of the election, people yeah. needing each other. Yes. But where do we go? You know, how are we now going to mobilize? How are we going to act specifically? in our places where we live on real issues. Uh, and I think that's, that's the place to, to go. Yeah, the biggest thing I would say to somebody is pick an issue. 
like you can't do everything there's too much to do yeah. and um in some ways the way that social media scrolls everything in front of us it, it kind of gives us the illusion that we can know everything if we just hang out on social media long enough then yes. we can know but that's not really how it works and and so I've selected one aspect of social justice to focus on right now. Hmm. And uh, when I've done what I can with that issue, I may be able to move on to a next, the next one. But even while I'm right here working with the LGBTQ community, I can see how this community is affected by something like climate change, uniquely so. Or I can see hmm. how this community is affected by um, immigration policy or people in this community are affected by um, the economic structure that leads some people to have lots of benefits and other people to have no access to health care like I can I can if you dig deeply in any topic you will eventually find that it connects to something else and it's the ability to see those connections that I think will be most helpful to us because we can't do everything and we can't be everywhere and we can't go to every march and still have a life. That's right. That's well, right. Really. And one of one of the things that's encouraged me is uh, locally, uh, we've had a couple of meetings since the election uh, at our local public library here in here in Holland, where um, our Lakeshore Ethnic Diversity Association has gathered people, and and we've had uh, people informing us on women's issues, on LGBTQ issues, on climate issues, immigration, race, um, religious diversity, and, and a number of things, becoming Sanctuary City. And we had over 200 people show up uh, to a couple of these meetings in this largely conservative town I live in. And that's just so heartening. And then they had us break up. They said, as you said, pick an issue that you feel passionate about. Let's make smaller groups and let's have action steps and let's connect to organizations already doing work in those areas mm -hmm. and let's work together. And, and of course, you know, when they said, okay, here's all the group where the different groups are meeting now go pick one. I'm like, ah, I like all these issues, you know, but you're right. You can't do everything. No, no, you have, you, you do have finite time. Um, and so even if you think about, um, some of those that generation of really effective um, activists in, in the civil rights era a lot of them had terrible family lives mm. really terrible family lives and so their public work happened at the expense of their private life and yeah i think i hear in a lot of the people involved mm -hmm. in the movement for black lives a concern that that not be our generation's experience mm -hmm. which I, I really do appreciate that that sensitivity to um, not sacrificing your quality of life for a future that, you know, I assume that the work will still need to be done after I'm dead anyway. So if, <laughs> right. if it's a multi-generational project, then why should I suffer in the here and now if I don't have to? Hmm. Yeah? So I think that there have to be ways that we can, through community, make sure that the work continues to get done without forcing anyone to unduly bear the cost of, of getting it done. Mm -hmm. and, and part of that, it means allowing people um, to rest or giving people the permission to take a break. Um, and, 
and in activist culture, that's not always something that we might say we talk about self-care and, and other other things like that, but um, it can be really easy to work yourself um, work yourself into ill health or um, even just the energy of resistance as opposed to building things that can be corrosive in its own way. So uh, so yeah, these these are things that we're beginning to talk about, but but part of it really is just taking an issue, um, digging into it, seeing its connections, being open to the pre-existing work, as you said, and, uh, and, and seeing where that takes you. Makisha, I really like what you said about um, the self-care because I, I do think it's very important sometimes, mm -hmm. especially when you're dealing with such heavy, important issues, to take a step back and take care of yourself and take a break from it mentally and emotionally and you know go somewhere or do something that that completely takes you out of it and it and we do talk about in our society about how important it is mm -hmm. however we also have that element that when people actually do it we judge mm -hmm. them yeah 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 that's that's our dishonesty our cultural dishonesty around work or uh, around contribution and value so we basically say that people who can't produce are, are not worth anything. Mm. Yeah. Uh, across, you know, whether that's in the social good sphere or it's in the, the world of work. If you can't work, then, well, somebody older than me said, if you can't work, you shouldn't eat, right? It's in the good book somewhere, right? <laughs> uh, it's in there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's been used, hasn't it? Used and abused. And you know what? And I, I have I have such issues with that because first of all, I think everybody in their heart wants to be part of a community. Everybody wants to be a functioning member of society. But when mm -hmm. society shuns you, mm -hmm. society pushes you out. You know, I I get how that disconnect happens. And the other thing is, a lot, a lot, like if you think about our young and our old and our like all the all these people that like they did work. You know, they were they were working for other people. They were, you know, providing and, and taking care. And and then when they are no longer able to work, we're gonna judge them. We're gonna push them out and be like, "Hey, you can't work anymore. We have no use for you." That's right. just not taking care of your own. Right. And and even what we call consider work. So my grandmother um, only worked outside the home for very narrow bands of her life. Um, she did a lot of work within the home. She did a lot of work on the farm. She did some market stuff. She uh, she taught people informally, not because she didn't finish high school. Um, but but when a certain kinds of work, including emotional work, are devalued socially, mm -hmm. then nobody ever really gets credit for what they bring to a situation. Yeah. Even yeah. if even if what they bring to the situation is what keeps it functional. So when I think about this question, I'm thinking about um, communities where uh, female spiritual leadership is not valued, but without that spiritual leadership, the church wouldn't be able to run. Mm -hmm. And nobody no doubt. until like those people go away. And, and as, as far as your grandmother's concerned, isn't our number one job as a society to take care of our children, to raise our children. Anybody who has done that in any capacity, whether you're a parent, a teacher, whatever, that is the most important job we have to 
to humanity is to raise the next generation. And it's so discounted in our country as unimportant. Yeah, yeah, I, it would be awesome if, if parenting and uncling and aunting and um, neighbor down the roading were valued as ways that people could contribute to society. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I don't, I'm not like putting unique stock on somebody who can biologically reproduce, but I'm saying and agreeing with you that yes. being able to contribute to the continuation of society, whether you are actively raising a human being or teaching society in ways that create the structure for that human being to thrive, mm -hmm. yeah. both of those are, are important and critical ways to and, and to that, that next generation as well, yeah. And I'm yeah. not, absolutely not saying just the people that can biologically reproduce. Gotcha. I truly believe it takes an entire tribe to raise, raise a child. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you said, it's the aunts, it's the uncles, it's, it's the friends next door. It's the people, you know, that your, your kid goes to, to talk to because they're not getting what they need at home. Like it's, it's the coaches, it's everybody, mm -hmm. everybody who interacts with that child is so important. And we just don't value that at all. Yeah, and so here's the interesting thing about, I guess, the, the intersection of, of this valuing community that we're talking about right now and arguments that I read today from the latest HUD nominee, Ben Carson, about how communities should take the place of government support for people who need housing and public services. So basically they're saying that communities should be doing what we've allowed governments to do as far as provide people with social benefits. And maybe in an ideal society, community should do that. Right. And okay. we've also got a situation where um, we need to invest in community so that it would have the capacity to do that. And we also need our governments to be functional. Like it's not a one or the other. Yeah. No but, but we framed it as a one or the other. Keisha, let me say though, as somebody who lives outside of Portland, mm -hmm. um, Portland has a huge homeless problem. And mm -hmm. like I, I um, help out on Thursday night at a, at a church and, you know, I've sat and talked to these people. <laughs> you know, it, uh, Portland cares about their community. Uh, like this is why I moved here. They're such a community based area and I absolutely love it. But there are other cities that give their homeless bus tickets to come to Portland because Portland takes care of their people. So if you're gonna say the community's supposed to take care of them, I think they should be shipping them up with something, you know, like it just doesn't make sense to me. Like we don't like want you. My great, wonderful yeah. people around. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. And I think that's, that's another way of um, evading responsibility. So people are saying community right. should do it, but not my community. Yeah, yeah. I I don't want to I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. You know, yeah. I just yeah, which is so dehumanizing. It's oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I tell you what, there's some so, pretty freaking awesome people. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, like no. any population, and and many of us are just one medical crisis away from that. Even with the ACA, um, yeah. a, a lot of us are much more vulnerable than it appears because we have the ability to press our shirt and take a bath, and so nobody knows how fragile we are economically. Yeah. 
Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, we are approaching the end of our hour, and I did have this uh, quote from Martin Luther King Jr., and maybe we'll have to have you back to discuss this one, Keisha, but he <laughs> said, the church is not the master or servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state that must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. And I, I feel like uh, that role for not only the church and the Christian faith, but people of all faiths and no faith, uh, it's a time for us to uh, speak out of our conscience and speak out of our values and live into those. Um, so any uh, lovely discussion tonight, any, any closing thoughts, any final word of wisdom from either of you? I love that quote, that's all. Yeah, I, I love it too. And I think that the church is not ready to live into it yet. <laughs> like, like we haven't earned that right to live into it. Mm -hmm. um, ah. I, I've, I've been in several situations where church administrators have quoted something like that as a, as a justification for using church influence to limit people's civil rights because the church is supposed ah. to be the conscience of the state or the prophet to the state. Yes. And, um, so so there, there's, there's a, a, an authority implicit in that statement that we have not shown our capacity to wield with any kind of humanity and respect. So if I were somebody who weren't part of the church, I would not trust that statement. I would not. Well said, well said. Wow. Well, that's a wrap. And that's a fantastic <laughs> close, Keisha. Well done. Great to have you on the show tonight. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, friends, for tuning in to Pub Theology Live. Please connect and spread the word on social media. And remember, you can listen to us anytime. Pull up the podcast on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, your favorite pop podcast app. And if you'd like to find a conversation like this happening in your town, check out the official directory at pubtheology.com. And there may well be some folks hanging out at your local brewery or coffee shop having a conversation just like this. Again, thanks to our sponsors, Craft Beer Cellar, who you'll find at craftbeercellar.com, and Wink Wine Club, who you'll find at trywink.com slash ptlive. So until next time, friends, drink responsibly and keep those conversations flowing. Thank you both. Keisha, Thank that was you. awesome. You are like, I would love to sit and have a drink with you and just have great discussions. <laughs> we'll do it again. She Definitely. is a fount of wisdom. And I, I just, you. You know, was really blessed by your presence in our pub theology conversations in person. And it's really great to connect to you, albeit briefly, in this forum. So thank you so much. Thank you, Brian.